Today you have an opportunity to hear from Dr. Tim Elmore, a longtime friend of mine. Tim and I met over 30 years ago when we were young men and just getting started. Uh, Tim had recently stepped out of a youth pastor position at a church in San Diego to join John Maxwell's organization in training leaders. Tim went on to start his own organization, Growing Leaders, a nonprofit group focusing on helping high school and college students, athletes and others become authentic leaders. He has spoken to over 500,000 people. He's written 30 books. He has been written up in Forbes and Wall Street Journal and USA Today and in other settings. And Tim has a unique uh, ministry, unique insights as it relates to generational issues. He speaks to a lot of emerging leaders. He speaks about some generational differences. And he is going to bring that insight to help us understand uh, some unique blind spots that we might have. I think you're going to have a great day. Well, good morning. Good to see you. As Mike just said, he and I have known each other for decades, and so it's fun for me to get to hang out with the people he hangs out with. Um, we're continuing the series, as you just heard, on blind spots. And today we're looking at an unusual blind spot that I'm pretty convinced almost every one of us have, including me. And it would be generational blind spots. We grow up and we have a certain paradigm, a certain narrative based on the times in which we were raised. And we have those glasses on. And we tend to not understand as well those who are much older and those who are much younger. So while today we're very aware of ethnic diversity and gender diversity, today I'm going to talk about generational diversity and how do we make the generations connect and really benefit from those generations. So um, I'm going to start with a story that I think lays a foundation for where I want to go and what I want to ask you to do today, okay? Sure, Tim. Okay, I'll do it. Um, the year was 1921 when a surgeon by the name of Dr. Evan Kane first proposed the idea that a doctor could perform an operation on a person using only local anesthesia. In other words, up to that point, they'd always knock the patient out, even for minor surgery. And he said, I think we can numb the area, keep the patient wide awake for the whole thing, and, 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 and perform an operation. So he took the idea to his hospital board, and they came back with this response. They said, well, Dr. Kane, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is we're going to let you try this little experiment. <laughs> the bad news is you're going to have to find your own patient. So Dr. Kane scoured the land, and when he months later, he finally, finally arrived at a patient, a time, a date, and a place to perform this historical surgery. He walked into the operating room with his gloves and his mask on, and the room was literally filled with other doctors and nurses waiting to watch this historical event take place. Well, Dr. Kane very meticulously cut into the abdomen of the patient. He performed an appendectomy that day, sewed the patient back up with such precision that he got a standing ovation from everybody in the room. It was a smashing success. The year, as I mentioned, was 1921. The surgeon, as I mentioned, was Dr. Evan Kane. But I deliberately neglected to tell you that the patient that day was also Dr. Evan Kane. He performed surgery on himself. Does that gross you out right after breakfast? Now, here's why I tell you that story. I don't know if this is a stretch, but I tend to think anything I grow in spiritually, any spiritual journey, surgery that needs to take place, I got to do it myself. Would you agree? We can have pastors hand us the scalpel and the scissors, but 
I'm going to ask you today to climb up on the operating table and just allow God, not me, but allow God to maybe mold and mend and maybe take out what's needs to be taken out, put in what needs to be put in, but to operate on us so we can see people as he sees them. And I'm going to specifically zero in on people that are unlike you are, okay? So let me start with a really, really simple principle. Um, it's, it's, it's something you probably intuitively know, uh, but I want to just say it out loud, okay? So first of all, to connect with people today, I think we need to remember, first of all, that context explains conduct. Would you, agree, would you agree with that? In other words, once I understand the context of a person's life, it does explain what they're saying and doing. It may not excuse bad behavior, parents, right? But it does explain bad behavior. You follow what I'm saying? So this is just important to know. And by the way, this must be why God has mercy on us because he somehow knows the sinful nature we have and that we are kind of have a bent toward, toward self-centeredness. So that's point number one. The second one, quite simply, is this. In order to lead people, you got to read people. Maybe a better way to say this, you got to collect the dots before you connect the dots. So I want you to think for just a minute with me as I kind of jump into this huge topic that probably is bigger than I am. Think about the world that we live in as we've moved from the modern world to the postmodern world. And that's happened within our lifetime, most of us. So in the modern world, it was very structured and, se and, and, and segmented and linear. But think about this. 150 years ago, if you went to a school as a child, you were in a one-room schoolhouse. You were mixing it up with various generations. If you were a 12-year-old, you were probably helping a 7-year-old with her spelling and then relating to your 38-year-old teacher. You follow what I'm saying? You, you were with a lot of generations, and it was just all mixed up. We have graded it all now, haven't we, both in church and school. If you're a 7th grader, you're with other 7th graders. And while I understand you do see other people, we've segmented our population. We've niched it. We have niches, and we stay in our niches. Uh, think about television for just a minute. Some of you have been around a long time. I won't name names, but some of you have been around a long time. 65 years ago or so when television was brand new, remember what it was? It was three channels, and families would gather together and we'll all watch the same, same show. Does anybody remember these days? You know, watched, I don't know, I Love Lucy or whatever it was, and we were together. And even though we, we did have different lives, there was something we did together as family. Well, now, my goodness gracious, there's 400 channels, 500 channels. You can watch... The Gall Channel for left-handed people with incomes over $250,000 or something like that. Just, do you notice this? And so everybody's got, families rarely gather together. We're watching our own niched program. Facebook, social media, totally. Um, Facebook and other social media sites give us confirmation bias. Have you heard that term? Psychologists use the word confirmation bias. If you uh, log on, Mark Zuckerberg, thank you, can find out what you like, what you buy, what you click on, and he'll feed you more content that just aligns with that. And so again, we have this niche, this confirmation bias, and we stay there. If you watch Netflix, You'll see this. If you like this movie, you'll like that movie. Amazon, if you bought this book, you may also like the. Am I, right, am I right about this? So we get further into our pipelines, into our niches, into our, our places where we just get, in fact, we just find it easier to do life with people who are just like us. I hope you would agree with that. I'm not saying you can't do otherwise. I'm just saying it's easy. It's less emotionally stressful to be with people that think like you do, look like you do, act like you do. And so I'm going to suggest today is really about you stretching outward to be with people unlike you. Think for just a minute. Every generation represents a different paradigm, a different lens, if you will, like my glasses. As a friend, a colleague, a supervisor, a family member, you name it. 
And so what I thought it would be fun to do today is I'd like to look at why we might not see things the same way. I'll give you a good example. Last weekend, I was with a major NCAA Division I athletic program. Great school. You would respect it. It's going to remain, remain nameless. But I was with the student athletes one night, and then the next morning, I spent time with the head coaches. Well, in the student athlete time, we were doing some Q&A, and one student athlete stood up, and he's a leader, and he said, my coach has gone crazy this year. That was such a stark statement. I said, I beg your pardon? He said, my coach has gone crazy this year. He doesn't get us, he doesn't like us, and he doesn't even care. Well, I thought that was an amazing statement, so I just logged it in. The next morning, I spent time with the coaches. I actually find this guy, and I just began to talk to him. And he is so funny. He goes, all these student athletes, they lack grit, they're entitled, they don't get what they need to do, and they don't care they don't get it. It was almost an identical comment but completely from a different angle. Do you follow what I'm saying? Now, I realize that might be an exaggeration. All I'm saying is we naturally do this. Unless we fight it, we will do this. So I thought this might be helpful and relevant. On the screen in just a second, I'm going to put part of a chart that I put in the book, Marching Off the Map. And on this chart, I show the five generations that are living right now that are still influencing the world. There are six alive today, but there are five still influencing the world. So if you look at the screen, here are the five generations. I know this is fine print, but let me read it to you. If you go from left to right, you have the builder generation. They would be the people born between 1929 and 1945. Some of you were in this room, okay? That was one particular season that molded you during the first 20 years of your life. And then following the builder generation, there was the baby boomer generation, born between 1946 and 1964. They were called the baby boomer generation because nine months after World War II was over, the maternity wards filled up. Okay? There was a boom of babies as the soldiers came back from the war. 76 million kids born in 18 years. That had never happened before in America. Okay? So it was huge, very different, big, big mindset on the boomers' part because everybody ten, paid attention to the baby boomers. They wanted our eventual dollar. So we were marketed to television programs, books written to us, about us, and for us. As you can tell, I'm a baby boomer. Okay? After the boomers come the baby busters or Generation X. Um, their generation started at the public introduction of the birth control pill. So instead of a boom of babies, it was a bust. There were 46 million, not 76 million. In fact, think about this. There was a birth control pill, and in 1973, you had Roe v. Wade. Now you had a shrinky population, not a boomy population. And that marked them. The extras kept feeling like they were growing up in the shadow of that big baby boomer generation. Following Gen X comes Gen Y, the millennials, basically the people born in the 80s and 90s. Some social scientists have them starting earlier or later than this, but I think it's basically kids born in the 80s and 90s. Some of you are here today. And then finally, the newest population that we're measuring today would be the homelanders or Generation Z, basically the kids born in the 21st century. In fact, one historian calls them the homelanders because their generation started at about the same time as the Department of Homeland Security. It's been a very different world the last 18, 19 years. Wouldn't you agree? Now, here's what I thought would be fun to do. Please tell me you think this is fun, okay? I thought it would be great to look at the life paradigm or the narrative each one of us brings into adulthood. We're shaped pretty much in the first couple of decades of our life, and while we do still grow and learn, we are really wet cement those first two decades, and it gives us a paradigm or a narrative as we approach life. So let's jump in. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm going to go through this one by one. So for the builder generation, that would be my mom and dad's generation, I gave them the life paradigm, just be grateful you have a job. Now you can see why, can't you? 
My father is still alive. My mom passed away. My father's still alive. He turns 89 years old next month. Think about this. He was born in 1930. The first 10 years of his life were the Great Depression. The next five years, World War II. So may I describe him to you? Very frugal, right? Very frugal. Very grateful. Very conservative. Resourceful. Turn the lights off when you leave the room. Shut the door. We're not air-conditioned the whole, whole neighborhood. Have you all heard this one before? We're not air-conditioned the whole neighborhood. And by the way, have you heard this? Say the wrapping paper at Christmas. We'll use it next year. Have you all heard this one before? We will use that paper next year. Okay? Just don't rip it. Don't rip it. Okay? By the way, I cannot tell you folks how often my father, I love my dad, how often my dad has said, Tim, just be grateful you have a job. I say, Dad, I started the organization. Just be grateful you have a job. Yes, sir. Okay? All right. Next generation, the baby boomers. Okay? By the way, who are the builders in there? Builder generation, raise your hand. Yay, great, glad, okay, glad, glad you guys are here. Baby boomers, 4664, raise your hand, boomers. Yay, lots of you guys, okay. I'm not sure what the other satellites are getting, but I have lots of boomers here. By the way, boomers, aren't you still glad we can just raise our hands? We're still breathing vertical and we can raise our hands, okay. I gave us the life paradigm, I deserve better, because boomers felt entitled to a better life than mom and dad had had during the Great Depression, World War II. This is a time of expansion, not depression. Uh, McDonald's was franchising, shopping malls were popping up. It was a time of think big, let's go, okay? Xers, Xers in the room, raise your hand. Okay, good, lots of Xers. I gave you the life paradigm, you'll love this one. Keep it real, keep it real. Okay, look at the dates that you grew up, 1965 to 82. By the late 1960s, not only was the Vietnam War going on, it was on television. And even though Lyndon B. Johnson kept saying, everything's fine, everything's fine over there from the White House, we kept seeing footage going, I don't know if it's fine. And then you had the Watergate scandal. Now you had a Democrat and a Republican both lying from the White House. There was a very real wall of skepticism that went up in the minds and hearts of the adults during that day. But you Xers were kiddos and you thought, I'm going to be cynical too. And you grew up in a little bit more jaded generation. Keep it real. Don't tell me everything's wonderful. It's not wonderful. Lots of latchkey kids growing up in that generation where mom and dad were both working or mom and dad got divorced. That was when divorce became a bigger issue. Okay, you follow what I'm saying? By the way, I need you to nod if I ask you a question. You follow what I'm saying? Okay, good, all right. Millennials, millennials, raise your hand. Yay, okay, it's okay. You can raise your hand here, it's okay. Um, millennials, you're gonna love this one. I gave you the life paradigm. Life is a cafeteria. Now, let me explain why. You won't say this, but this is how you think, I think. Um, I have two millennials at my, at, at, in, in, in Atlanta. We gave birth, Pam and I gave birth to a daughter, Bethany, who's 31, a son, Jonathan, who's 27. Life has been a cafeteria. Uh, what I mean by that is, in the same way that you go to a buffet, a cafeteria, and you kind of tailor your meal for your taste buds, we've, millennials have grown up in a time they could customize all the options that they have. So think about this. Millennials, you didn't have to buy a record album or a CD to get their music. There might be four songs on that CD you don't like. You can buy one song at a time from your own playlist on Spotify or iTunes. Am I right about this? Life's a buffet. Millennials felt very good about tailoring their college experience. They'll graduate from high school and go to three or four different colleges for one degree. One of them's overseas. Am I right about this, millennials? I'm just, this is my journey. It's my journey, okay? By the way, I see this as I've worked with millennials now for 20 years. Um, They'll tailor their spiritual journey. Their faith is very customized and unique. A little bit of Jesus, a little bit of Buddha, a little bit of Oprah, shake it together, I've made it my own faith. 
All I'm saying is this is kind of the day we're in. I'm not liking it. I'm just saying it's just a new day. For Gen Z, the youngest kids that we're um, measuring, we just released a book uh, yesterday on Generation Z Unfiltered. If I gave one phrase to what we're hearing in focus groups across the country from these teenagers, it would be this. I'm coping and hoping. I'm stressed out. I'm a little overwhelmed. I'm anxious. Panic attacks, maybe. Not everywhere, but do you not hear this up in Chicagoland as well? And so it's just a time of stress and being overwhelmed and so forth. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Here's the big picture I want you to notice. It seems like in terms of the tone of each generation, there's a pendulum that keeps swinging back and forth. Look at the chart again. For the builder generation, it was caution. For the boomers, confidence. For the Xers, caution. For the millennials, confidence. For Gen Z, caution again. For, for if you were raising a millennial 15, 20 years ago, you might have had to say, now wait a minute, Josh, you might not be the vice president when you're 25 years old, right? Okay, slow down. For Gen Z, you might have to say, you can do this. I really believe you can do this because I'm kind of stressed right now and I don't know if I can. Now, uh, let's do another column. I'm going to do one, one more and then we want to break down each one, okay? I thought this might be interesting to do. Let's look at attitude toward authority in each generation. Anybody think that might have changed in 90 years? Okay. So for the builder generation, at least this is what I heard as I've interviewed builders and talked to my own mom and dad. For their, them, their attitude to authority, respect them, right? You respect the police. You respect the mayor. You respect the president. Even if you didn't vote for him, you respect that man, okay? For the boomers, it was replace them, okay? We'll just, we just thought we'd take over, thank you very much, all right? For the busters, it was ignore, ignore them, okay? <laughs> you, extras, you were just out at Starbucks somewhere getting coffee or lattes or something like that. For the millennials, it's choose them because remember, life's a cafeteria. So about a decade ago, I was hearing millennial college students say things like, well, yeah, he's my professor, but he's not my mentor. I have to take that class. I'm choosing my mentors. I'm choosing the people that I want to invest in me. It was very much, it's my choice. I'm customizing my learning. But folks, I got to tell you, even though I see a, a high stress level in Generation Z, I see a very oxymoronic attitude toward authority. With this portable device in their hand, they have access to all kinds of information. So in many Gen Zers, their attitude toward authority is, not sure I need them. I feel like I've got it right here. And so, so here's, here's the oxymoron I'm talking about. So not sure I need them says, I think I can do this on my own. I don't need help. But I'm coping and hoping says, I desperately need your help. So you may feel this oxymoron. If you're a teacher or, or a parent, you might feel this oxymoron. I desperately need help from an adult. I don't need help from an adult. Going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So just reflect for a moment. This is the question I rhetorically ask you today. Have you experienced any challenges that I, as I kind of just mentioned this, maybe in your workplace or maybe at home or maybe with extended family on family reunions or, or anywhere? I think it exists more today because of the postmodern world we're in than it even existed maybe 56 years ago when we first started using the word generation gap, but it really wasn't a huge gap like it is today. So very rapidly, in one minute, because Generation Z is this newest population, and perhaps you've not done research on them, can I give you in one slide, Generation Z's childhood world has been a very different place than the millennials as they grew up in the 90s or the 80s. Think with me for just a minute. Their generation began at about the same time as September 11th's terrorist attacks. And since that time, 26,000 other terrorist attacks have happened. 
Kids growing up today feel like somebody's getting blown up somewhere in the world every day. Um, the dot-com era bubble had bursted and many Americans struggled financially. Uh, much of their memory has been of economic recession. There's been two economic recessions since the turn of the century. So their feeling was, even though they didn't feel it as an infant, they saw mom and dad stressed about that, mom's looking for a job. Uh, the conflict in the Persian Gulf is the longest war in memory. It's still going on. That's all they've ever known. They've only known a war's going on in the Middle East. Uh, gender and racial equality struggles exist. Hashtag Black, Li Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Me Too. Uh, leaders in Washington experience polarization, not collaboration. That's all they've known is these two fighting groups yelling and catastrophizing all the time. Uh, mass shootings often on school campuses outnumber the days this year. Did you know that? There's been more mass shootings than we have days in the year this year. Think about growing up in that. Just think for a minute. Growing up in a world where that was happening. Somewhere some shooting is taking place right here in the good old USA. And then lastly, the world is full of complex and complicated problems. All I'm asking for is, could we empathize just a bit with these kids, knowing they're loaded with potential, just like we were. But boy, do they need listening ears and wise counsel as we raise them, lead them, teach them. So I want to go back to that scripture that you heard earlier as, that Ben shared. In 1 Chronicles 12, 32, this has become my favorite passage in the Old Testament. But in this chapter, the writer of the Chronicles is chronicling the tribes and the clans of Israel. And as he gets to this one tribe, the tribe of Issachar, he says, this is the value these people add to our life as Israelites. Look what he says. And the sons of Issachar were men who, would you read those next three words out loud? What's it say? understood the times. In other words, when we look around us and we just don't know what's going on, these people seem to get what's going on. We seek counsel from them. And look at this. He didn't stop there. With the knowledge of what the people of Israel should do. I love this. So they didn't just understand the times. They seemed to have insight as to what to do. This has been my prayer for today. God, help us at Christ Church understand the times and give us insight as to how to connect with these different generations, all of which are in the body of Christ, but sometimes we just don't spend much time together. Can I look at one more passage? In Psalm 50, the writer says something very interesting. He's writing and speaking for God, but look what he says God is saying to us. God says, when you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. In other words, the mistake you make, human beings, God was saying, was you thought I was like you. I wonder if that's not only true in our vertical relationship with God, but in our horizontal relationship with you. You thought he was like you or she was like you. No, they're not. They're humans, but they're not like you. This, by the way, can I just get really honest with you? This has been good for me as a dad with two kids, one in her early 30s, one in his late 20s, and they just, we love each other, but they're just so different than I am. And I probably sound like an old codger saying, well, back in my day, I walked to school, you know, whatever. I don't know what we say, but it's, and it's just not computer. It's just going, you know, that sort of thing. So here's my big question. What if each generation could see the value that the others bring to the table? I want to do this in a rat-a-tat-tat sort of way, but I want to just do a glimpse of each generation now and how they might add value to the other generations if we only stopped, double-clicked, push-pause, and let them. So think about the baby boomers for a minute. Some of you boomers are in the room. Those are the people born between 46 and 64. Some of the most famous or more famous boomers that you would know are on the screen right now. Think about the value they might add if we just let them. Stories. Oh boy, do they have stories, right? Uh, ex life experiences from comparable times in their youth. 
awareness of the pitfalls to avoid, uh, life coaching. This is one of the greatest things, boomers. If you think you're out of stuff to give or you don't want to work anymore, you want to get in that Winnebago and just drive around, maybe you can. But I'm thinking what you really need to be doing is saying, can I offer you what I've collected along the way, good and bad, what to avoid, what to do. Think about Generation X for just a moment, 65 to 82. Some of the most well-known, some of the more well-known Xers would be these people right here. Think about their value that they bring to the table as a generation. Realism, authenticity, balance. They were the ones that kind of introduced work-life balance, that whole thought, because boomers got... Boomers, boomers live to work. Xers work to live. Uh, pragmatic wisdom, resourcefulness. They're now the heart and soul of the workforce. Think about Generation Y following Generation X. Those would be the millennials, more or less. Some of the more famous millennials would be these people. You know these folks? Uh, there's the Biebs up there, yep. Um, so millennials, big value. I think there's lots of it. Confidence, lots of confidence. Energy, tech savvy. They're very social. Now, their social may look different than your social, but very connected, creativity, optimism, maybe even idealism, uh, love of family. They've always tested out every year of their existence a love of family. If they don't have a functioning family, it's dysfunctional. They'll make up a family. They want to be a part of a family. Uh, awareness of their influence, that they can tweet and it goes viral, and they're awesome. Millennials, am I right? If you don't ask, just ask, ask a millennial. They're awesome, okay? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So Generation Z, already many Generation Z kids are making their mark on the world. Some of the most well-known ones are there. Uh, but Generation Z, I believe they bring a hacker mindset, meaning I'll get behind this whole thing, figure it out, and figure out a way to make this goal happen. Uh, they're entrepreneurial. 70, get this, 72% of public high school students in America want to be an entrepreneur. Seven out of 10. Now, they may not be, but that's their spirit. They want to start something. Uh, they're very cause-oriented. They're social media savvy, savvy. So millennials grew up with a cell phone. Gen Z grew up with a smartphone, and they're very intuitive about it. Uh, they have a do-it-yourself disposition. They have a fresh perspective. So in the few minutes I have left, here's what I'd like to do. I hope I've at least whet your appetite that, yeah, there might be some value that people unlike me could give me, okay? And... There's value you can impart to other generations, older and younger. But I'd like to end with four ideas, very rapidly, four ideas that are all built off of some curriculum we wrote called Habitudes. Now, that's a funny word, but Habitudes are simply images that form leadership habits and attitudes. We teach a timeless biblical principle with the power of a picture. So I'm going to give you four pictures to close out my talk. Here we go. The first image, it's quite simple to understand but quite difficult to practice, is simply an image that we call chess and checkers. Chess and checkers. Now, I want you to think about these two games for just a minute, okay? Just patronize me, all right? If I opened up a box of checkers and then I opened up a box of chess, I would notice, ah, it's the same game board. And I might assume, same game. That's not true, wouldn't you agree? Talk to me real quick. What would be the first difference I would notice inside the two boxes? It's the pieces, isn't it? When I play the game of checkers, all my pieces look alike. Same color, same shape, same size. They all move alike. So I treat them all alike. In chess, if I have any hope of winning the game, I got to know what these pieces can do. That a bishop does this, and a knight does this, and a rook does this. Only in knowing the strength of each piece can I win. You know what I've noticed? Moms and dads, hear me. Mediocre leaders play checkers with their people. They treat them all alike, and they get average performance. 
Great leaders have learned to play chess in the relationships of their life and to connect with others at the uniqueness of their personality and their strength, and those people flourish under the leadership. I had teachers, I've had employers that played chess with me and brought out the best version of me. And I've had lots of checkers players, haven't you? Just barking out the orders. Moms and dads in the room. How many of you moms and dads have more than one child? Can I see your hand? Would you not agree? I gotta play chess, not checkers, because they are so different, eating the same green beans under the same roof. So if you're gonna play chess well, here's what you got, there's four discoveries. You need to know their, tr- their strengths and weaknesses. You know they're gonna be different. You need to know their triggers. That would be their, the things that motivate them, the things that move them. Um, everybody's got different triggers. We need to know their personality. All the personalities are quite different and the combinations thereof. And then finally, we need to know their learning style. As a parent, I try to learn those. And by the way, as a leader in an organization, I try to know the, the, the personality, the learning styles, the strengths and weaknesses of the team members around me. That's how you play chess, not checkers. And I think we need to do this with the generations. Here's another picture I want you to get. We call it Pyrrhic victory. That's actually a term you can find in the dictionary. We just turned it into a habitude. Pyrrhic victory is built off of a war that took place centuries ago. It was a battle. It was the Battle of Asculum, where 40,000 Greeks were fighting 40,000 Romans, and it was a stalemate. After weeks of battling, swords, shields, horses, men were just dying everywhere, and it was a stalemate, as I said, until the Greeks finally brought in elephants to burst down the walls, and they finally won the battle. King Pyrrhus won the battle. But as he was surveying the remains after the battle of the dead bodies strewn across the land, his captain approached him and said, King Pyrrhus, congratulations on your victory. And his response was simply this, one more such victory and I shall be lost. Now, do you know what he was saying? He was saying, I may have won the battle, but I may have lost way more than I just won. Have you not agreed as you get into arguments and debates with spouses, family members, other generations, Thanksgiving's coming. You're going to be with Uncle Bob, okay? You don't want to win a Pyrrhic victory. The truth in a nutshell is simply this. Some battles are won at too great a cost. More is lost than gain. It's key that we wisely choose what we'll lose, meaning choose your battles. Some battles are just not worth fighting, and they're not worth dying on. So can I just give you one tip real quick? I believe we must always decide what's most important. Is it the relationship or is it the result? In business, sometimes it is the result. But much of the time, would you not agree with me? You don't want to give up that relationship for that stupid battle you just won on making the bed right or something like that. You can say amen or ouch, either one. Okay, <laughs> okay. Real quick, we got to keep moving. Um, surgeons and vampires, that's quite a combo, don't you think? So this is all about giving feedback to someone you disagree with or maybe your child. Surgeons and vampires both draw blood. In fact, I would contend you don't look forward to seeing either one of these guys, do you? Okay? But can I give you the big difference? Here's the big difference between surgeons and vampires. It's the truth in a nutshell. There's a right way to offer feedback or criticism to people. Vampires suck the lifeblood right out of a person, operating from their own need. It's their own need to to bite. Surgeons, on the other hand, treat medical conditions carefully and constructively. Both of these guys draw blood but lead to different outcomes. Here's what I've noticed. When I am just frustrated and I just want to vent, I'm a vampire. I'm operating out of my own need. I need to get, we even say that, I need to get this off my chest. And so we vent. 
I have come to believe that I tend to lean, and maybe you tend to lean toward one or the other. You're not literally a vampire. You're not literally a surgeon, but you'll tend to lean one way or the other. It seems to me like you're going to offer feedback from relief, meaning I'm relieving my own tension. I'm venting. I'm a bit like a vampire. I'm going to bite you now, but I'll feel better. Or out of belief. I may say this very same thing at the end, but I say, I know you're better than this. I've seen the best version of you. You can do this. Both are hard. Both draw blood. Totally different outcomes. Okay, one more. A bridge, not a wall. You, even if you're not an engineer, know that building a bridge requires much more work, money, time, and energy than building a wall, okay? Uh, Let's talk about this real quick. You can build a bridge or you can build a wall in every relationship that you encounter. We tend to naturally build walls with people who are unlike us, and we tend to naturally build bridges with people who are like us. It's just how the human brain works. In fact, it works this way from preschool on. It's not just racism. Preschoolers were measured in the University of Texas in Austin, and they found that kids preferred certain colors that they were wearing and other kids were wearing. But watch these statements here. Number one, we naturally connect with people who are similar. That means you have to work to connect with someone who is not. We tend to like those who are like us. We tend to prejudge those who are unlike us. You naturally do this unless you're biblically careful with your life. In fact, that's where the word prejudice comes from, prejudge. I prejudge automatically because you're just weird. You're just weird. And then lastly, we tend to withdraw from those who are different. So I have an assignment for you as I wrap up. I call it reverse mentoring. I actually bought it from Jack Welch. What if you got together with another person from another generation and you both mentored each other? Jack Wells started this at GE in the 1990s. He had some old guys that didn't understand computers, and they were having to learn computers, and they were 60 years old. But he had some young whippersnappers just graduated out of college. So he had the older people pouring into the younger ones saying, this is how this company works. But he had the younger ones say, here's what we've learned about technology that you might not know. Both got dignity because both gave to the other. Doesn't that sound strangely like the body of Christ? So... Years ago, when my two kids turned 13, they're four years apart, we did something in our home that was probably the wisest parenting decision we'd ever made. Our da- daughter, Bethany, was first. She went, when she was 13, I sat down with her one night, and I said, Bethany, I want to create this year with you, to dig- together, you and me, a rite of passage experience. Because in America, we really don't have those, like the Jewish culture does, or like many cultures do around the world. Something that helps move a child from childhood to adulthood. In fact, she said, what's a rite of passage? I had to explain it to her. But then, that night together, we created something that absolutely was transformational for all the family. In the next 10 minutes, she and I, my little eighth grade girl and myself, chose six women that would be one-day mentors for her that next year. Women that she thought were really cool and women that my wife Pam and I really admired as wonderful, godly role models. Some were working women, some were stay-at-home moms, but we, we picked ladies that she thought were cool, but we said if Bethany would spend a day with them and just watch them live their life, she would see a picture apart from us, even though we were not seconding our parental responsibilities, marvelous role models. Well, it didn't take us 10 minutes. We picked six. I called them all up the next day, and I said, this is going to sound kind of crazy, but would you let my daughter shadow you one day this next year? Just be with you all day long. If you go to work, take her to work. 
to stay at home, keep her at home, but we want her to watch you live your life for a day. And the only thing I ask of you is, as you're together that day, would you just share one life message with our daughter Bethany? A message you wish you would have heard when you were 13 and nobody ever shared it with you. Well, folks, every one of these ladies said yes, and then they went beyond my wildest imagination. The first lady, Sarah, is an RN. She works in the maternity ward at the local hospital. She took our little eighth grade girl, took her into the maternity ward. Our daughter Bethany was helping women give birth to babies between nine and three that day. Kind of scares me just thinking about it. And by the way, women in the room, she saw everything. C-section, natural birth, she saw everything. At three o'clock, Sarah takes her out of the maternity ward into another room in the hospital where Sarah taught a class for unwed mothers. She was amidst, amidst a bunch of other teenage girls that were pregnant and probably, probably didn't want to be. And then at the end of the day, over dinner, do you know what Sarah's life message was for our daughter? It was on handling your sexuality wisely, being pure, waiting for the man that God brings you. Well, don't you know that message got through loud and clear that particular day of her life? Much better than my lecture, and I've got a dandy lecture on that subject. Holly was another one. She took Bethany downtown Atlanta. They worked in the projects. Betsy's a flight attendant with Delta. She took Bethany up to New York City for the day and talking about making your life an adventure, not just playing it safe. Every one of these ladies had an amazing experience. And here's what I heard. There was reverse mentoring going on. They were imparting to her, but she was sharing with them. It was crazy cool. And I watched my little girl grow that year. At the end of the year, we had all the ladies come together in our home. We fed them dinner. Bethany said a big thank you. In fact, Bethany sat them down in the living room, and she did this herself. She sat a chair in the middle of the room, and one by one, she looked at each lady, and she, had, she read a letter that she had written. Dear Miss Sandra, this is what I learned from you. This is how my life changed. Dear Miss Betsy, this is what I learned from you. This is how my life changed. Well, you can imagine there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And then when it was over, I stood up and began to read from Genesis how Jewish fathers would bless their children. I couldn't get through my comments, but I didn't have to. Every one of these ladies knew exactly what was going on. They got off the sofa and chairs, knelt down on the carpet, and looking up at our little girl, they just started speaking words of blessing. Bethany, you're going to be a great leader, I can just tell. Bethany, you're going to be a great mama if you choose to be. Bethany, you're going to be an amazing woman. Here's my cell number. It was amazing, and I say that only because no one said anything super brilliant, but it was generations just connecting. What if that happened here? Let's pray. Father God, help us to work at getting with people unlike us. Help us to love like you love, to see like you see, to think like you think, so we can value what you value. I don't know what the application is, God, but I pray that you put people in our path that we can connect with and realize this is a divine appointment. Continue the work that you're doing at Christ Church, God. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.